Open your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 33, and look at verse 4. The Bible says, so Psalm 33 and verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. Y'all believe that? Let's read that verse out loud together. You ready? For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. Look at Psalm 119, 160. Let's read this out loud together. When you all get it, Psalm 1, when you have it, say amen. amen. All right, let's read it out loud. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth until Andy Stanley says they don't. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Is that not what your Bible says? No, what does it say? They endure how long? They endureth forever. How many of you believe that? I, I was honestly shocked to hear what I'm going to show you. And I want you to see the difference in where the world has gone. So we're going to go backwards in history a little bit. This book is called Posthumous Essays. And that means it was written after he died. So apparently someone else did it. Is that fair? Okay, someone else published it. By Abraham Booth. Abraham Booth was born in the early 1700s. And this is his statement of faith. This particular copy was printed, I think, in 1811. But it says this. This is his statement of faith on the Scriptures. It says, The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, containing a well-attested revelation from God, my Maker and my Sovereign, I therefore look upon and receive as the only rule of my faith and practice. This divine book, this heavenly volume, I accept with humility and gratitude from the hand of my adored Creator as a gift of inestimable value. And considering it as the grand charter of my eternal salvation, I cannot but esteem it as my indispensable duty implicitly to submit to its sacred dictates in every affair of religious concernment. And it is because I am fully persuaded that the following doctrines are contained in those oracles of eternal truth that I embrace them as articles of my faith, as the foundation of my hope, and as the source of all my spiritual joy. Do you think he has respect for the Bible? I love that. As a gift of inestimable value. That, that's the heart that we ought to have. You know, someone like Andy Stanley would call us Bible worshipers, you know, because we care about the text of the Bible. That's the accusation. We're Bible worshipers. There was a man, his name was Robert Haldane. He was born in 1764, and he was of the Scottish nobility. And he got saved and became a great preacher. This is his book, and the title of this is The Books of the Old and New Testament Proved to be Canonical and Their Verbal Inspiration Maintained and Established with an Account of the Introduction and Character of the Apocrypha. All right, doesn't that sound just exciting? And so this is 1837. Listen to what Haldane said. These are questions of fact to be determined upon the evidence of those credentials in virtue of which the Bible asserts its authority over every soul of man and appeals him to the final judgment seat of the eternal Jehovah, the greatest bibliolatrist, that is Bible worshiper, the greatest bibliolatrist on record was our blessed Lord himself, and it is written was the only answer he deigned to the subtle temptations of the apostate spirit." How about that? Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Now, don't smoke, kids. It's a joke. 
Um, this is the coming of Christ, premillennial and imminent, by I. M. Haldeman. I. M. Haldeman was pastor of the First Baptist Church in New York City. This was written in 1911. And he said this about the Bible. And this is under a chapter, Can Truth Be Known? He said, I have a reverent faith in the unity, harmony, and clearness of this book. I believe that it is inspired of God. I believe God has spoken not only His thoughts, but His words, and that we have under our eye the very accents in which He has seen fit to communicate His mind and will to us. That's good, isn't it? And so what we see is that all through history that Baptist preachers have had as their sole authority the Word of God. Now, young people, look at me. It's really important that you get this. We don't go to church councils. We don't go to church creeds. We don't go to church fathers. We go to the Bible. That is our authority. Now, for historical reference, we can go to the church fathers. For any other things like that, we can go to them. But we don't go to them for authority. Our authority comes from the Bible alone. Amen? And so what I want you to see is I'm going to show you a sermon that Andy Stanley preached on August 28th of this year. The title of the message was The Bible Tells Me So. The Bible Tells Me So. All right, so let me say this. Some of the contentions that he makes against the Word of God, we're going to answer tonight. And what's interesting is I didn't have to study. The stuff that he said, it's not, you know, you're, as I watched it, it wasn't, oh, no. How, how am I going to? He's so brilliant. How are we going to answer these things? No, it, it's none of that. It, it's also silly. I, I had Jacob watch it this afternoon, and Laura listened as she bumped around the house. And um, I asked Laura after it was done, I said, what did you think? And I think this is a direct quote. I don't want to be standing anywhere near him. So I, I'm just curious to see what your response is after. Okay, good. All right. I brought a couple of things in here for you. He will, on his display or on his timeline, he'll show you Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. So I went ahead and brought, a couple, I brought copies of those in here for you to see. And one of the things that I'm going to want you to see is I opened up this. Uh, this is Codex Sinaiticus, and so these are the columns of the text. Do you see the blank right here? That's where Mark chapter, the last 12 verses of Mark are supposed to be. Now, how many of you can see that it's skipped? Now, the other thing that I want you to notice is there are no blank spots like that anywhere else in the text. And so it's obvious that it was skipped over, that it wasn't there. And so because of that, John MacArthur preached a sermon on how those last verses, those last 12 verses of Mark aren't supposed to be in your Bible. From that, that's it. So I wanted you to see that. This is available. I did close it so you wouldn't be able to find it. Um, but if you would like to see what that actually looks like, I have it here available for you. Are we ready to go? So this is, he's just doing some introductory remarks. And what we're going to do is I'm going to play you his sermon, and I'm going to stop it and make comments to answer some of his inanities. 
Well, we are continuing our series, Who Needs God? We're in part three. And if you've missed part one and two, you are coming in in the middle of the movie. But the good news is, as long as you pay your electric bill and have internet, you can catch up if you go to whoneedsgod.com. More and more people in our society feel a little bit stuck in the middle. Now, when I say stuck, this is, I don't mean they wake up every morning worrying about this. And if you're in this category, it's not like you don't have a great life and things are great and you have friends and family and you're busy and you're working. But if you had to sit down and describe yourself, you would say, you know what? I'm not really religious. I'm kind of unaffiliated. Maybe I grew up in church, kind of know some Sunday school stuff, but I just had too many questions. It's not scientific enough. I don't have faith in faith. At the same time, I hope there's something out there because atheism, while it is not all that appealing, Christianity for me, you might say, has lost its appeal. And the reason I know this and the reason I wanted to do this series is I love to listen to stories of deconversion, read blogs from people who've deconverted specifically from Christianity. There are podcasts that are hosted by people who just interview people who've deconverted from Christianity. And every time I hear one of those stories and every time I listen into one of those stories, there are a couple of threads that, you know, kind of weave their way in and out of just about, not all, but just about all those stories. So we talked about one of those last week. We talked about the somebody told me so God, if you weren't here last week or if you listen, miss, miss the message before this one, you may want to tune in. Somebody told me so, God. We talked about the gods of our childhood. You know, bodyguard God that never let bad things happen to good people. Then bad things happen to some good people. You're like, I don't believe in that God. Uh, we talked about several versions of God. And we said, if you quit believing in any of those gods, good. Because you are right. Those gods don't exist. In fact, we said, if you have lost faith or are losing faith, it may be because you have lost faith or you're losing faith in a God that never existed in the first place. That's what we talked about in part two. Then I said the other thread that we oftentimes see weave its way through the stories of people who've stepped away specifically from Christianity is what we call a Bible told me so Jesus. A Bible tells me so Jesus. A Bible tells me so Jesus. So today I want to spend the majority of our time addressing the a Bible tells me so Jesus version of a story which may be part of your story. But here's a little warning. You've got to listen carefully, okay? No daydreaming, no counting the lights in the ceiling, no online shopping while I'm preaching, okay? You got to look right here. If you, if you zone out for just a minute, you may be lost, not because you're not smart, but because we're covering a lot. It's a bit complicated, but I'm telling you, for some of you today, for some of your kids... Now, how many of you feel like, okay, little girls, okay, little boys, today I'm going to tell you a story. How many of you feel a little bit like that right now? You've got to pay attention, not because you're not smart. Anyway, there you go. The worldview is so odd to me. It's your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, and your grandkids. For some of you today and some of your extended family, this might be the message. Not because it's coming from me. I didn't make any of this up. In fact, if you think at some point he's making this up, Google is your friend, okay? I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. But this may be the message that gives some of you permission permission to step back toward the faith you grew up with, back toward Christianity, not the version of the faith you grew up with because you outgrew that version, Listen. but back toward Christianity as Christianity was meant to be believed and understood. Now, um, perhaps, and here's, here's where we, we kind of start the conversation, and this is where we have our, our first you know, collective um, you know, aha, not aha moment, but oh my gosh moment. And it be, the conversation really begins like this. Many of you, you're like me, many of you were brought up to believe this. Jesus loves me. This I know. Right? 
I mean, if it's, it's a fabulous song. Most of our kids are still singing this song. We sang this song. Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next line? Right, for the Bible tells me so. And this is where our trouble began. It really did. This is where our trouble began because, and don't leave, because the implication is, the implication is, this is important. The implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. The Bible is the reason to believe. In other words, I can believe Jesus loves me because it's in the Bible. I grew up in a church where basically the byline, the subtitle for everything was, if the Bible says it, that, anybody? Settles it right here on the front row. Yeah, that's right. If the Bible says it, that settles it. And so we send kids off to college with a, if the Bible says it, that settles it. And oh my goodness, they discovered that that didn't settle it. Now, how many of you are a little bothered already? Now, I want you to notice something right from the beginning. And it's, it's a presuppositional thing. So all of us have presuppositions. Those are the things that we presuppose. And here we begin with the authority of God's Word, and that you don't need my opinions, you need the Word of God. And that's the heart of everything that we do. So every message begins with, open your Bibles too. Not, Google is your friend. Different foundation. It's a different foundation. And so the other thing that he just said is, um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is where the problem began. And the point he's going to make is, well, I'll let him make it and I'll stop. But it's really important that you listen to what he's saying. And it's real easy on a video to just your mind to wander. All right? So don't count the ceiling, ceiling tiles. Don't do online shopping. I need you to focus here for just a minute. And then they come home and they say, Mom, Dad, Grandma, my Granddad, Uncle, Aunt, did you know, did you know? It's like, I don't ask those questions. The Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible says it, that settles it. The problem is this. The problem with that is this. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. In other words, Christianity cannot survive if the Bible goes away. Let's pray and go home. I wish that's where he ended. All right. Christianity cannot survive if somehow every single part of the Bible isn't absolutely true if the Bible is the foundation of our faith. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, it is all or nothing. This is why when you grew or growing up, every once in a while you would bring information to your parents or your grandparents or maybe somebody else who was raising you. And you'd say, today at school we learned and they just kind of shut you down. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We're Christians. We don't believe that. It's like, yeah, but it's true. Well, we don't believe that. Well, what, what was that about? Why are Christians so afraid? Why are Christians so fearful? Why are we not the most curious people and scientifically oriented people in the world? And I'll tell you why. Because you were raised in a culture like I was raised in, and it was all or nothing. If anything proves that something in the Bible isn't actually, absolutely, historically, scientifically reliable, uh-oh, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Because this version of Christianity is a house of cards. And all you have to do is pull out one card and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards Listen. that comes tumbling down when we discover that perhaps the walls of Jericho didn't. When we discover or we're told that perhaps there was no exodus from Egypt to the promised land, that there's no historical evidence of that. When we're told in school and in graduate school that there's no evidence for a worldwide flood. 
when people point out apparent contradictions in the Bible. How y'all doing? I've never heard anything in an evangelical church worse than this. You know, I've played you things from, you know, kooks. You know what I mean? Just really odd things. I have never seen anything from a church that identifies as an evangelical church. I have never in my life seen anything that's this bad. And just the entire attitude. Now, let me say this. We're the most curious people in the world. We love science here. Now, young people, I want you to turn around because you know I do this all the time. How many of you work in a scientific field? Okay, now you guys hate science, right? Because it disagrees with the Bible. Is that right? No. No. And the idea that we can't answer the questions, we, you know, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. But it's true. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. Now, I imagine there are Christians that behave that way. But that's not Grace Baptist Church. What we say is bring your questions, bring your questions, bring your questions, bring your questions. I mean, I, I get mad when you all don't ask questions. So this is a straw man. This is a parody of Christianity that he's presenting. And what happens is he has such influence. Remember, there are 40,000 people listening to that sermon. 40,000 people in person listening to the sermon. Not to mention the millions of people that listen to him online. And what they're learning about Christianity is that we're know-nothing, we're not curious, um, we're anti-science. Everything that Richard Dawkins would say about us, he is affirming. And he's just wrong. All right, so let's keep going. When in school we're told there's no way the earth is 6,000 years old, it's 4.5 or 4.55 billion years old, and the universe is 14.5 billion years old, and all of a sudden all we have to do, you know, the, the tension is around, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, but science has said, science has said, the Bible says, science has said, the Bible says, and all of a sudden there's this extraordinary, extraordinary tension. If the Bible, if the Bible, if the bi entire Bible isn't true, then let's be honest. The Bible isn't true. I mean, if the whole thing isn't true, because when you grow up, and I grew up, if you grew up in a church in the United States, it's basically the Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible says it, that settles it. And then we grow up, and we become adults, and we become aware of things that make us wonder if everything in the Bible is true. And when we conclude, or if we come to the conclusion that maybe it's not all as true as we were told it was true, Christianity comes tumbling down. Christians feel, your parents felt, your pastor felt, perhaps you still feel, that the pressure to defend the Bible, because if you don't defend the Bible, you can't defend Christianity. And this puts the Bible in the center of the debate. This puts the spotlight on the Bible. This puts the Bible in a place that if we can't defend everything in it, everything in it goes away. And the good news is that that's very unfortunate. And the great news is that is absolutely unnecessary. Christianity and the Christian faith is far, far, far more endurable than any of that. So here's, here's my plea today. And then we're going to jump into some detail. If you deconverted, if you walked away from Christianity, if you kind of stepped back from the whole thing because of something you read in the Bible, something you were told about the Bible, I want you to listen carefully. Because at the end, I want to invite you to take a step back toward the faith of your childhood, not childhood faith. It's time that it grows up. But the great news is there is a grown-up version. There is an adult version that is far less fragile 
then the Bible says it, that settles it. And if the Bible didn't say it, that doesn't settle it. And if there's anything wrong with the Bible, then the whole thing comes tumbling, tumbling down. Christianity. Did y'all get that? What he's saying is all that stuff about the Bible, you don't have to defend the Bible, that Christianity is bigger than the Bible. All right, so let's look at a couple of verses. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's the foundation of our faith. The power that we have in faith, the power that we have in ministry comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And that, that is, that's the foundation of everything that we are. And if the Bible's not true, then Christianity's not true. And if anything in the Bible is not true, then the Bible is not true. But the good news is the Bible is true. <laughs> Thy Word is true from the beginning. Look at uh, Psalm 119, look at verse 104. How should we feel about what is being said in this, uh, not my sermon, but in his sermon? Look at Psalm 119, 104. Psalm 119, 104. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Look at verse 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be what? Right, and I hate every false way. Does that, ref, does that reflect or uh, align with anything that he's preaching right now? So the basis for what he's saying doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from his own philosophical approach to the Scriptures. And the other thing that I want you to notice, and some of you might not know this, his father is Charles Stanley. So when he's talking about what the way I was raised, I was taught, the way... I, what he's doing is he's mocking his father as having a very childish approach to the Scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Well, count me in. I also have a childish faith. Jesus Christ said, unless you come into me as one of these little children. And that is a very simple, it's a childish faith, I believe. Look, Jesus, you said it, I believe it. I believe it. Now, as we grow, we learn that the faith is much more sophisticated than that. Right? I mean, the, you, you can't plumb the depths of the truth that is in the gospel and in the scriptures. There's no way to ever comprehend it all. And yet it goes back to a very simple childish faith. Father, I need you. Jesus, I believe in you. Um, so, here we go. He's a smug joker, isn't he? Okay. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Now remember, your birth certificate is a historical document documenting your birth. What is the Bible? Historical document documenting the birth of Jesus Christ and everything he wants us to know. His argument... I, honestly, this might sound bad. I don't know how smart he is. His arguments are very unintelligent. Um, it's kind of embarrassing. 
Your birth certificate documents, documented something that happened. And the New Testament, we're not talking about the whole Bible. The New Testament documents, document something that happens. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It is the other way. Do you hear what he just said? The new, not the Old Testament. The New Testament documents something that happened, which implies what? The Old Testament doesn't document something that happened. Around. And here's why I say that. But it requires a history lesson. So instead of taking notes, I would suggest that you take pictures. But if you're going to take pictures of the screen, you need to turn your flash off. We have plenty of light up here, believe me. Okay, a little history lesson. And no history lesson is complete without a timeline. So here's the timeline. You ready? Everybody thinking? Everybody with me? Okay, first of all, we've got to get one thing straight. Um, in the first century, um, when Jesus was alive and walking around, they were used the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we use, which means the dates got a little out of whack. In fact, around 525 AD, somebody came up with the bright idea of reorienting history around the birth of Christ. AD, BC, not ACDC, two different things. AD, BC, okay? But unfortunately, unfortunately, in 525, they weren't able to accurately figure out when that actually happened. Then in the 16th century, the Gregorian calendar became the calendar that we use, and they incorporated into it the whole A.D., B.C. So all of that to say, you don't have to remember any of that, all that to say, Jesus was born about two or three years before his birth. No. So Jesus was born... Jesus was actually born in 2 or 3 B.C., the best that we can tell. But here's where we start moving forward with our um, discussion today. At around 30 A.D., around 30 A.D., Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And about two and a half or two months later, the church was launched. In 30 A.D., several dozen Jewish people went into the streets of Jerusalem and they said, You crucified him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. You crucified him right here in this city. God. Say you're sorry. How many of you understand that repentance is not just saying you're sorry? The flippancy of his language, it's very disturbing. And it demonstrates the flippancy of his apologetic, his, his uh, use of language to defend the scriptures. It's, it's very weak. Raised him from the dead. We've seen him. Now you need to say you're sorry. And hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem embraced a risen Savior. Not 50 years later, just a few weeks after the actual resurrection. And when that happened, the church was born. The next important date as we move through this is 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman legions. And in 66 A.D., four years before, Ta um, Vespasian came down from Galilee and began to roll up city and town and village after city, town and village, coming down, moving down toward Jerusalem to squelch and to put to end, once and for all, the Jewish revolt and the Jew Jewish rebellion against Rome. When he approached the city of Jerusalem, basically he had funneled all the people who were in rebellion, all the different factions all the different gangs, all the different people who were trying to take over and run the country. He funneled them all into the city of Jerusalem. Then he went to Rome, eventually became an emperor, left his son Titus to finish it up. Titus builds a ditch and an earth wall all the way around the city. 
And day after day after day crucifies hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands of Jews outside the city as a threat. Eventually the walls were breached actually on August the 6th. August the 6th, the year 70, the walls were breached. The Roman soldiers went into the city of Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. They enslaved tens of thousands, some say hundreds of thousands. So many slaves drove the price down in the slave trade market from there all the way to the city of Rome. Jews were eventually expelled from the city. No Jews allowed in the city of Jerusalem. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people died. 70 A.D. Now the reason this is an important date for us is none of what I just described. None of what I just described is described or referenced in any of the New Testament documents that eventually became our New Testament. So one of the mysteries of history is why is there no reference to an event? It wasn't a day. This was like really five years, but four intense years where it was dangerous to live in Galilee, dangerous to live in the city of Jerusalem, dangerous to live in Judea. The Jewish people were constantly under threat. I mean, it was horrible, horrible, horrible time. And there is no reference to any of that. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, there's no reference And the only logical, probable explanation is it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. Which means that all the New Testament documents, all the New Testament manuscripts that were written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, all of these documents were probably written before the destruction of the temple. Which means they were all written between about 49 and 69. But let's be kind of open-minded because a lot of scholars... Now, I want you to see what he's doing. What he's trying to do, he's taking arguments, and he'll identify where he got the arguments. I've, I've shown you some of Frank Turek's stuff. He's going to quote Frank Turek's book, Stealing from God, and tell you the chapter and all. So what he's doing is he's trying to tell you that you can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in a little while, he's going to tell you that but they didn't think they were inspired. This argument is so convoluted. You don't need the Old Testament. You need the New Testament, but you don't need the New Testament. It's unbelievable. Um, So I I just, this part gets a little boring right here, but I can't really skip through it. So um, just endure it. They were written later. So we're going to extend our little yellow line out to about 86 AD. This is when the Gospels were written and the epistles of Paul. Now, the reason that's important is these documents were written during the time when the eyewitnesses to what Jesus claimed to have done were still alive. Now, what you were taught and what some of us were taught in school and sort of the word on the street is no, 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 no. All these things were written way after 90 AD, maybe 100 AD, way after, but there is no, there is absolutely no evidence for that, none. The reason some scholars want to push the writing of the New Testament documents way out here is because of miracles and specifically because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so as the story goes like this, well, you know, there was all these, everybody wanted to believe he was alive and everybody started saying that maybe they'd seen him and time went by and time went by and time went by. And through oral tradition, these stories got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually somebody wrote them down because it takes about 70 years for legend to start to sound like history. The problem is nobody references a point in time when if you are Jewish and you're living in the vicinity of of Jerusalem, Judea, and you're traveling to Galilee, how in the world could you not at least reference what was going on while you were writing and documenting the life of Jesus? It's virtually impossible to imagine. So 
All of the evidence, or most of the evidence, really all the real evidence, points to the fact that... Now, let me say this. Those points that he's making right there about the early date for the... All that's true. All that's, that's good. All right? And, but then he undermines it here. Coming, These up. documents were written between about 50, 52, 49, and 70, or let's string it out to 86. Now, here's the part that you don't care about, but this is so important, especially if you walked away from Christianity because of something in the Bible. The New Testament writers, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they did not write as if this was story. In fact, there are stories written, you know, pre century before Jesus, two or three centuries after. So there's like a story motif when people are writing fiction. It sort of all sounds the same, just like it does today when people write fiction. But the, the um, gospel writers wrote as if they were writing history. And I want to just give you one example of this, okay? This is really, really important. So this is from the Gospel of Luke. And these are the verses that if you read the New Testament, when you get to them, you just skim over them because you think, oh, this isn't important. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice how the extent that Luke goes to, to pin himself down to a specific historical context because he was writing history. Listen to what he does. Look how far he goes. In the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Aturia, and Trachonitis and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So when did this happen? <laughs> now, let, let me, this is, this is huge. Okay, look. This is Luke's way. Remember, we're not talking about the Bible. This is a person who wrote a document that we call the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke's way of... I think the Gospel of Luke is in the Bible. Just, okay. And fact check me, I dare you. This isn't, you know, some time ago or a long time ago or back when the Romans ruled the earth or in, you know, in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time or back in the day. He says, no, no, no. What I'm, the story I'm about to tell you is narrative, is history. This really happened, and I want to pin it down to a very, very, very specific time in history because this actually happened. Check my facts. Now, if you're making something up that you want people to believe, you would never, ever do this. This is way too risky. It's much too easy to show that you're lying or exaggerating. Now, I gotta move on, but this is such a big deal. I wanna give, uh, give you a resource that if you're interested in this kind of thing, my friend Frank Turek a few years ago wrote a book called Stealing from God. And in chapter seven of this book, he goes deep on this whole question of can we really believe or take seriously the New Testament documents? The entire book is fabulous. In fact, he addresses many of the things that we're addressing in this series. It's an easy to read book. He's done a great job with his research, but chapter seven deals specifically with this question. So here's what happened. These documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Paul's epistles, all of these documents are so valuable to the first century church, that what do they do? They run down to Kinko's. It's like, I want to have my own copy. Oh, there's no Kinko's. So what do they do? They begin to meticulously copy these documents. And now here's something you don't know, but it's just one of those unexplainable mysteries of history. In the first century, there is an explosion of documents and documentation about the life of Jesus and the copies of the letters of Paul and Peter and James. I mean, there is nothing to match this in any ancient history. In fact, there's nothing to match this until the creation of the printing press. 
The, the idea that so many people would write so many things and meticulously copy the, you know, the core essential teachings of the church for it to, to circulate the way it did, there's nothing like it. There's not even anything close. These documents were distributed to Rome, from Jerusalem, to Constantinople, um, to Egypt, um, all around the Mediterranean rim. In fact, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these documents. Now, when you go to school or when people kind of say, ah, the New Testament or the Bible, can't believe the Bible, there were lots of errors and they just copy, copy, copy. Look up here. That is so ignorant. That, that's just somebody who doesn't want to take the time to look at the facts. That's somebody who's lazy. But if you are interested in stepping back toward the God that you grew up with, but the grown-up version, if you are really interested when you look at the facts, the facts are so extraordinarily overwhelming. Let me ask you a question. What do you make copies of? I know the answer. You make copies of things that are important. I mean, you throw stuff away all the time. But maybe years and years ago, you actually hand copied something. Or now it's like, oh, I want to make sure this doesn't fade over time. I'm going to copy it. Or I'm going to go down. I'm going to go to my copy or make copies. We only copy things that are important. And let me tell you what. Wax tablets and the things that they wrote with were so expensive and so precious. It is even more evidence as to how valuable these documents were. That they, were they weren't writing new things. They were making copies of things and distributing them all over the place. They were user, name, and password careful. Okay? Because this was so extraordinarily important. And... Again, you hear, well, there's mistakes. And, you know, anybody that writes something, there's mistakes. Absolutely. There are thousands of variations in these documents because they were copied so many times and dispersed so broadly. Here's the great news. There are thousands of documents that can be compared to each other. And guess what? If you have an English study Bible, any English study Bible, in the footnotes of a Bible you probably already own, are the variants that make or could possibly make any difference in what's being said or taught. This is why every once in a while in a footnote it'll say, an earlier document says this, an earlier manuscript says this, a later manuscript says this. You know why? There's nothing to hide. And the variance in the documents makes no theological or historical difference. Zero. In other words, there's not a batch of documents that say Jesus was crucified. And another ones that say, no, he fell off a ladder while cleaning the gutters. You know, it's not like there is no, and I'm being facetious. There is no, there is absolutely no big change in the story. Now, I think we all know here at Grace Baptist that what he's saying there isn't true. Okay, no, there's nothing in there about Jesus falling off a ladder. But there are important points of doctrine that are removed from Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. You know, we could show you, we've shown you that many times. So we'll continue. Because they were username and password careful. This was like, oh my gosh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Can I hang on to this for just a couple hours? You can sit there and watch me. I know you don't want to lose this. I promise. Let's compare. They were, it, was, it was unbelievable. And here's, here's the thing that, that I don't want you to miss. They did not make copies of the Gospels because they believed they were inspired. Did, did you all hear that? Okay, so let's just check the Scriptures. All right, go with me to Second Peter. All right, look at Second Peter chapter 3. And look at verse 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and and unstable rest, as they do also the, what are those next two words? Other scriptures unto their own destruction. So uh, a, a preacher that I heard earlier said that almost before the ink on Paul's writings were dry, the ink was dry, Paul, or Peter, is identifying them as Scripture. All right, what does the Bible say about Scripture? All Scripture is given by what? So did the early believers believe that the Scriptures were inspired, yes or no? Yes. Do you see what I mean, how you don't have to study for this? They made copies of the Gospels because they believed they were true. So time marches on. Then we go back to our timeline. These documents are circulated all, really all over the known world. Then in 312, something extraordinary happened. Constantine defeated um, uh, at the Tiber River. Constantine defeated the other emperor. There are actually three emperors at this time. Maxentius, he conquered, he destroyed Maxentius' army. Maxentius escaped with his life, tried to cross the Tiber River, drowned in the river. They found his body later. And in this moment, in 312 AD, Constantine becomes the undisputed emperor of the Roman Empire. It's the end of the Tetrarchy, and now he is in control. It was actually 311. Roman Empire. But here's, again, another mystery of history. During this time between the resurrection of Jesus and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the time that Constantine became the emperor of Rome, during these years, Christianity grew and grew and grew and gained influence, and these were the persecution years. These were the, you know, thrown to the lion's years, you know, right when Nero was, was emperor. These were the years throughout here where there were localized persecutions constantly of Christianity. And yet it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and it spread and it's extraordinary. I want you to notice something really important. He said no, it was a localized persecution. Under Diocletian, it was universal persecution. And that's a dispute among modernist historians. But under Diocletian the entire Christian church was persecuted. So that's just a small... It it gives you an understanding of who he's reading. And it is unexplainable. In fact, Constantine's mother became a Christian before Christianity was legal. Okay, she became a Catholic. And she went to the Holy Land and had visions and said, this is what happened here. This is So a lot of the sites, when you go to the Holy Land, this is where, you know, the seven stages of the cross and all that. that they were all visions that she had about where... It, it's all complete fabrication, just all of that. And that's Helena. Helena. In spite of the fact that the Romans had a, you know, so many gods that they worshipped, in spite of the fact that Rome was eternal, the eternal city, that no one could defeat Rome, and yet in spite of that, in spite of the fact that the Romans said, the reason we are so powerful and the reason we're so successful is we have the favor of the gods. And with the favor of the gods, Christianity grew and it spread. Eventually, Constantine lifts the restriction on worship in the Roman Empire. Eventually, he embraces Christianity. But here's what most historians will tell you. Constantine, and this is fabulous. This is, this is unbelievable. Constantine did not embrace Christianity because he was all that interested in becoming a Christian personally. Constantine embraced Christianity to unify the empire. 
Do you know what the significance of that is? That is staggering. That Constantine's like, I got to find something that most people in the empire have in common. And it's not the Roman gods anymore. Wrong. Completely wrong. There was a huge movement of Christianity in the Roman Empire. But there was also a huge group of people still worshiping the pagan Roman gods. So what Constantine did was he took Christianity and merged it with pagan Romanism. And that's where the Roman Catholic rituals come from. That was the significant spread of Christianity in the most difficult years. That's why I'm convinced, this is just my opinion, that Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible even existed. So what he's saying, his premise is... Well, I'll let you explain it. I'll let him explain it. That the Christian faith grew from 30 to the time of Constantine, not on the back of the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches. In fact, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish scriptures were not combined with those New Testament documents. Look at this. They weren't combined with the New Testament documents until 350 AD. The first record or the first um, existent copy that we have of the Old Testament, it wasn't called that until about 130 AD. The Old Testament being combined with the, the Greek New Testament, the first co- the first reference or the first one we have or the oldest one we have is 350 years is 350 years after the birth of Christ and here's why man he's got a hard time getting his statements out let's let's just see if that's true okay so you d- later on I think he'll say that the New Testament wasn't called that until the 200s go to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 Hebrews 9 and verse t- 15 and for this cause he is the mediator of the what The New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the what? The First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So there you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we didn't have to wait until 300 for that. The other thing about 350, when he's saying that it wasn't, that you didn't have the Old Testament and the New Testament put together until 350, in a minute, you'll see on his timeline, he says that it was even later than that, that it was that the term Bible came from. Well, the word Bible means book. So it was at that point that the Bible was put into a book. Okay. The Bible existed before it was stitched together. Right? So what he's saying is they didn't have the Old Testament Scriptures. How many of you picked that up? They didn't have the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at Acts chapter 17. And again, we didn't have to study for this. It's just the Bible. Acts chapter 17. And I'm not trying to sound sarcastic or whatever. It's, I'm just a statement of fact. It, Acts chapter 17, look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. It was his manner. This is what he would do, right? This was, this was his method. Everywhere he went, he went into the synagogue. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the what? 
the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Everywhere he went, everywhere they went, they preached the Jewish Scriptures. Go to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known what? The holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I want you to see what is absent from Andy Stanley's church. All right? This is what is absent. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. All that is absent from North Point Church. Why? Because they don't have the authority of the scriptures. It's vital that we see that. Um... Look at 1 John chapter 1. It's difficult for me to talk about these things without getting really angry. Um, It's just such an insult to Christianity. And again, again, this is not higher uh, intellect material. You know, our children here can answer these things. Amen? They know these verses. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Look at chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I what? Written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. John chapter 20, look at verse 31. And have you noticed that we can teach this without talking to you like you're morons? John 20, look at verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why it's written. All right, so now I want you to see what he says about it. Because it was illegal. Not only that, it was expensive. Nobody even even had access to the Jewish scriptures unless you went to a synagogue. It took Constantine becoming the emperor and having the wealth and the influence to allow the scribes and the scholars to gather these documents, put them together. They were still arguing about which of the New Testament, which of the first century um, Christian writings should become part of what would eventually be called the New Testament. But the Bible as... Yeah... And Constantine had Eusebius bring us Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. They decided that the Alexandrian text was a text that they would hold to. Why? Because the other Bibles were in universal use. 
They were being used. The, the text that underlies our Bible was being used in all of the churches. And what he's saying is people did not have access to the Bible until the 300s, until Constantine came along. That is just not true. The Bible was translated into the Old Latin in 150. It was translated into the Syriac in 157. And there are thousands of those pieces of Scripture available to us. In the 300s, okay, with no influence of Constantine, that Old Latin was being copied by Patrick. You know St. Patrick? He was making copies of that in the Old Latin. His grandson in the faith, Columba, went to Scotland and made 300 copies of the Old Latin Bible by his own hand so that it could be distributed among the people. What he's saying is just factually incorrect. And I don't think he's intentionally being incorrect. I just don't think he knows what he's talking about. And because he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's been influenced by infidels and is undermining the faith of all of his hearers. You know what? The oldest copy we have is 350 years after Jesus. Why? Because during this time, they're being written, then they're being copied and distributed, and over time, they were being gathered. And the first time that the word Bible, or the Bible was put as a label on this collection of Old Testament Jewish scriptures and New Testament writings was about 33 years later. When they put it in a book and they used the word book, it's, it's just infuriating. It just, the ignorance. 88 AD. Now, here's my point. And this is... I mean, this is a showstopper. This is, a, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. Oh, I, this is, oh, I, I need to pay attention to this. You ready for this? Before the Old Testament, which it wasn't called the Old Testament when this happened, and before the New Testament, the term New Testament didn't show up till about 200 or 220 AD. Before the Old Testament, New Testament were combined and titled the Bible. Christianity had already replaced, had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods and was the state religion for the Roman Empire. Before anyone ever held one in their hand. In fact, it would really be almost to the invention of the printing press before anyone ever held one in their hand. The first, second, and third century Christians, look at this. The first, second, and third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. First, second, and third century Christians believed they were absolutely convinced Jesus loved them, but this was before there was a Bible to tell them so. You see, this is the Roman Catholic view of history. And remember, you don't have to have a Bible to be a Catholic, but you do have to have a Bible to be a Baptist. And these people went everywhere preaching the gospel. They had the Word of God, and that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures. Look at First Peter again. First Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 22. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So what are they preaching? They're preaching the gospel. Is that right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the gospel? 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. What are the next four words? And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. What are the next four words? So this whole idea that they were were preaching the Bible before the Bible existed is simply not true. It is not true. We know that they had the scriptures. All right. Peter, James, you know, John, Luke, you know, all of these, these New Testament writers, they, were ab- they, did not choose, they did not choose to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus because of an infallible Old Testament or a non-contradicting New Testament. In fact, just to frame this up a little bit different, imagine this scenario. You know, somebody from the, the future comes back to have a conversation with Peter and says, Peter, well, well, Peter, before you get all geeked out about this Jesus thing... You need to understand. Do you know there's no archaeological evidence for a worldwide flood? Did you know that it's, that it's, people are skeptical of the whole idea of the Hebrew people migrating from Egypt to the promised land? Um, did you know the earth has to be more than 6,000? I mean, Peter, before you start telling everybody about Jesus, you need, you, you need to get your facts straight. And Peter would look at somebody like that and say, I'm sorry, I, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. But see, I watched my friend die. And then some ladies came knocking on the door and said, the tomb's empty, the tomb's empty. And I went running to the tomb and I looked in and I thought, you know what I thought? I thought somebody stole the body. And then later we had breakfast on the beach with my risen friend. So I don't know about all that stuff you're talking about. All I know is this. He died, he rose from the dead. And when somebody predicts their own death and their own resurrection, you just go with whatever they say. Okay? My faith doesn't hang by the thread of verifying everything in the Old Testament. I'm a Jewish man, he would say. So I love the Old Testament. I wouldn't call it the Old Testament. I love the Jewish scriptures. But I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the Jewish scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because he rose from the dead. Now that sounds good. And somebody might want to say amen to that, but that is completely false. He did know the Jewish scriptures and he believed in Jesus Christ because he fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. And let's, let's, just, let's just fact check what he said. All right. First um, Peter. Let's see. Let's go to First Peter chapter 3. And look at verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Well, wait a minute. Apparently, Peter believed in a worldwide flood. Now, am I getting into any really deep theology here? Or am I just reading what Peter said? Let's look at what else he said. Verse 11. I'm sorry, chapter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What is that talking about? As those who wrote the Bible. That's the way that you're supposed to speak. Um, Look with me at 2 Peter. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mouth. That's His testimony. Is that right? We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and a day, the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the what? Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So what do we have? We have revelation. That's where God gives the word. We have inspiration. That's where God gives the words to the men. We have inscripturation. That's where they write it down. Then we print it and we call that publishing. The, the foundation of it all comes from God giving man His words. And either we have those words or we don't have those words. And if we do have those words, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my words. That's a direct quote. If you love me, keep my words. So what do you think those people did? They kept his words. Notice he contradicted himself. There's this explosion of manuscripts that happened, but we don't have it until 350. There's an explosion. There's so many. It never happened in history, but we didn't have it together until 350. That makes absolutely no sense at all. For the first 300, for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. The all right, let's see if that's true. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. As also in all his epistles, that's the Apostle Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. What are they arguing about? The scriptures. Because some people are trying to twist the scriptures. What are, so it's not twisted sister, it's twisted scriptures. That's what they're doing. They're twisting the Scriptures. Do you see how ignorant his statements are? They're not biblically informed. question that for the first 300 years was not, is the Bible true, is the Bible true, is the Bible true? The question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew said, oh, yes, he did. And Mark said, oh, yes, he did. And Luke said, oh, yes, he did. And John said, oh, yes, he did. And Peter said, oh, yes, he did. And James, the brother of Jesus, said, oh, yes, he did. And then a fire-breathing Pharisee named Paul, who was going to put the church out of business, becomes a raving fan and dedicates his life to taking the gospel of Jesus. All right. Now, I want you to see something that's very important. Go to John chapter 14. His statement was that the men didn't know that they were writing inspired words. They were just telling the truth. All right? So Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14, look at verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Do you see that? He will keep my words. Now, look at chapter 16. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. 
And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come." So what these, what these apostles knew was that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended and indwelt them, that the Holy Spirit would lead them to write down the things that Jesus Christ had said and bring all things to their remembrance and also show them things to come in prophecy. They knew specifically that they were writing the very words, the very inspired words of God. Inspiration, that is God breathed, that is through the Spirit. They knew every bit of that. How is it that Andy Stanley does not know these foundational truths of Scripture? The Gentile people all over the Roman world. There's no, here's the thing, there's no explanation for the success of the church if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. The success of the church isn't the Bible tells me so. There was no Bible to tell them so. The success of the church was all was built around, totally built around. Eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why every Easter, every Easter I say this. We believe Jesus rose from the dead, but not because the Bible so. It's way better than that. Christianity does not hang by the thread of the Bible tells me so. Now, all right, that's enough of that. Um, and, and he just wraps it up. But do you see the, the, literally the heretical statements that he's making? It's heresy. It is heresy. Let me tell you something. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The apostle Paul told Timothy, Till I come, give attendance to reading. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Oh, this is so good. Look at chapter 1. Oh, man, this is so good. I just happened to see it while I was turning. Second Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 13. Hold fast the form of what? Sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same. What are those things? There's those sound words. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Look at chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Do you see that? Preach the Oh, but he didn't have it until 300. Timothy must have been really old. It's just silly. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. What kind of fables? Fables like they didn't have the Bible. Fables like you don't need the Bible to be a Christian. That's a fable. Man not, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The only problem is that's removed from most of the modern Bibles. So it, it, we have to understand, we have the Bible. It's vital 
I like what Job said. I have esteemed the words of thy mouth more than my necessary food. That's what Job said. That's not the attitude that he has. The other thing about, I know you probably wondered why these books are here. Stacy knew one time said, you're going to stand on them when I did something like this. Um, these books. You know, he said we didn't have the Bible until 350. It wasn't called the Bible until 388. How many of you saw that? These are the Anti-Nicene Fathers. That's A-N-T-E. That means before Nicaea. These are the men who wrote before the Council of Nicaea, 425. So, and, and it was at that council where, you know, they say that Jesus Christ's deity was affirmed and where the, the canon, the text of the Scripture, was, was settled. The only problem is in these books right here, these are the writings, they're the extant writings of the church fathers. So these are people who are writing about the Bible from the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the Council of Nicaea. You can reproduce, you can reproduce the entire text of the New Testament right from here. They're just liars, man. These people that say this stuff, they are just liars. And it could be that they're misinformed, but they are repeating stuff that is not true. It's not true. I can't help but think of Mike Gundy. Remember that Mike Gundy's rant? I'm a man. I'm 40. It's not true. But I'm just telling you, everything that he just said about needing the Scriptures, it is not true. Why did I bring this up? Why did I want you all to see this? You can't go to a Christian bookstore without seeing Andy Stanley material. His Sunday school curriculum is in many, many churches all over America. And if the statement, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, isn't true, I wonder what other error is in that material. So what am I doing right now? The Bible says one that's here. Let's, let's go ahead and look at it. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 3. And look at verse 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. And he has been admonished by this, by, by other godly men, and he has not recanted. If he didn't agree with what he said, this would be down off of their website, but it's not. This is, the, this is their position. And so we need to understand that there is an attack on the Scriptures and the authority of Scripture in Christianity today. And you ought to study something that's called Neo, N-E-O, Neo-Orthodoxy, Neo-Orthodoxy. That is what Andy Stanley is espousing. And that is the Bible is not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God where it speaks to you. That's exactly what Andy Stanley is, is espousing. And we need to beware of it. Amen? Do you know what we're going to stand on at Grace Baptist Church? The Word of God. The Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That's where we stand and it's what we believe.